Chapter 9, A View to a Death Over the island, the buildup of clouds continued. A steady current of heated air rose all day from the mountain and was thrust to 10,000 feet. Revolving masses of gas piled up the static until the air was ready to explode. By early evening, the sun had gone and a brassy glare had taken the place of clear daylight. Even the air that pushed in from the sea was hot and held no refreshment. Colors drained from the water and trees and pink surfaces of rock, and the white and brown clouds brooded. Nothing prospered but the flies who blackened their lord and made the spilt guts look like a heap of glistening coal. Even when the vessel broke in Simon's nose and the blood gushed out, they left him alone, preferring the pig's high flavor. So the author is describing the weather at the beginning. What, what type of weather is he describing? And what kind of comes with that in the South Pacific? Which could mean a? Ooh, wait, did you just say a storm is brewing on the island? Both literally and figuratively? Da, da, da. Just wait. With the running of the blood and Simon, with the running of blood, Simon's fit passed into the weariness of sleep. Simon's fit, so it could be like a seizure, right? He lay in the mat of creepers while the evening advanced and the cannon continued to play. At last he woke and dimly saw the dark earth close by his cheek. Still he did not move, but lay there, his face sideways on the earth, his eyes looking dully before him. Then he turned over, drew his feet under him, and laid a hold of the creepers to pull himself up. When the creepers shook, the flies exploded from the guts with a vicious note and clamped back on again. Simon got to his feet. The light was unearthly. The lord of the flies hung on his stick like a black ball. Simon spoke aloud to the clearing. What else is there to do? Nothing replied. Simon turned away from the open space and crawled through the creepers till he was in the dusk of the forest. He walked drearily between the trunks, his face empty of expression, and the blood was dry around his mouth and chin. Only sometimes, as he lifted the ropes of creeper aside and chose his direction from the trend of the land, he mouthed words that did not reach the air. Presently, the creepers festooned the trees less frequently, and there was a scatter of pearly light from the sky down through the trees. This was the backbone of the island, the slightly higher land that lay beneath the mountain, where the forest was no longer deep jungle. Here there were wide spaces interspersed with thickets and huge trees, and the trend of the ground led him up as the forest opened. He pushed on, staggering sometimes with his weariness, but never stopping. The usual brightness was gone from his eyes, and he walked with a sort of glum determination, like an old man. So Simon, he woke up from this stupor, this seizure, whatever had just happened to him, and he's walking, and he's heading up, up and up and up. What's at the top of something that goes up? What's on top of the mountain? No, the beast. Now the problem is, Jack, Ralph, and Roger, they've only seen the beast at night. And they thought it was a beast because they couldn't really see it. But now Simon's going to see the beast during the day. A buffet of wind made him stagger, and he saw that he was out in the open, on rock, under a brassy sky. He found his legs were weak, and his tongue gave him pain all the time. When the wind reached the mountaintop, he could see something happen, a flicker of blue stuff against brown clouds. He pushed himself forward, and the wind came again, stronger now, puffing the forest heads till they ducked and roared. Simon saw a hump thing suddenly sit on top of the rock, sit on top and look down at him. He hid his face and toiled on. 
The flies had found the figure too. The lifelike movement would scare them off for a moment so that they made a dark cloud around the head. Then as the blue material of the parachute collapsed, the corpulent figure would bow forward, sighing, and the flies settled once more. Simon felt his knees smack the rock. He crawled forward, and soon he understood. The tangle of lines showed from the mechanics of this parody. He examined the white nasal, the white nasal bones, the teeth, the colors of corruption. He saw how pitilessly the layers of rubber and canvas held together the poor body that should be rotting away. Then the wind blew again, and the figure lifted, bowed, and breathed foully at him. Simon knelt on all fours and was sick till his stomach was empty. Then he took the lines in his hands. He freed them from the rocks and the figure from the wind's indignity. At last, he turned away and looked down at the beaches. The fire by the platform appeared to be out, or at least making no smoke. Further along the beach, beyond the little river and near the great slab of rock, a thin trickle of smoke was climbing into the sky. Simon, forgetful of the flies, shaded his eyes with both hands and peered at the smoke. Even at that distance, it was possible to see that most of the boys, perhaps all the boys, were there. So they had shifted camp then, away from the beasts. As Simon thought this, he turned to the poor broken thing that sat stinking by his side. The beast was harmless and horrible, and the news must reach the others as soon as possible. He started down the mountain, and his legs gave beneath him. Even with great care, the best he could do was a stagger. So Simon gets up to the top of the mountain, and he sees the dead pilot. And he almost pities him. Like, this was a man, right? This poor body of this pilot is stuck up here. And he goes and he untangles the parachute, right? And then he's like, oh my gosh, I need to go tell the other dudes right away because the beast isn't a beast. It's just, it's a dead man, you know, which is kind of spooky and gross, right? Even Simon, you know, it, he smells it. It breathes on him, he says, right? And it makes him sick and he falls to the ground, right? But Simon kind of pities this, this body. And then he's like, I got to go tell everyone. But the problem is that Simon doesn't know about what has happened with the two boys, that they split, right? He's like, oh, they must have moved camp. But he doesn't know that Jack split away from Ralph. He wasn't part of that. He got up and left the meeting before all that stuff happened. So Simon's going to wander into this very sort of tense atmosphere between Jack and Ralph, right? So let's continue. Let me, let me pause and make this a part. 